Well, we're at the time in our service where we will continue worshiping uh, by attending to God's word. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 16. We'll be reading verses 12 through the end of the letter. And so we are done with this letter. Uh, I'll give you uh, some insights on what I think is happening in this uh, conclusion. But I've entitled our time this morning, An Impeccable and Important Closing Argument. This section really is Paul's closing argument as he rounds out the letter and finishes it. And uh, it has some uh, particular importance for us. Let's attend to it. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now, but he will come when he has the opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. They refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come quickly. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, every single uh, word of scripture is inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible. And you've told us, Lord, how to keep our ways pure. It is to read and to cherish and to hide your word in our hearts. Father, I imagine that there are some here, Lord, who are beat down and weary. Might today be a day, Lord, that you give strength and clarity. Some are confused. We, we read scripture and it, it still feels like a mystery, like there's nothing here, even in our passage this morning. Would you give clarity? Father, others of us uh, love you and know you, and we need further encouraging. Only you, Lord, can attend your word to our hearts uh, in a way that is personal and practical uh, and good for us. And so I pray that. Father, would you forgive me my sins? Uh, they are many in the sins of your hearers. Make us hearers and doers and believers of your holy word. May Jesus be exalted, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Karen, who's my wife, and I, we love to watch um, TV shows or, or series that involve solving a crime or something going to trial where you have to have a lawyer to kind of convince a jury of guilt or innocence. And uh, a movie that we watched recently was entitled The Burial. And Jamie Foxx is in it. And actually a friend of mine's father is um, Jamie Foxx's assistant attorney in, 
He's, he portrays him in the movie. And so that, that was, that, that's what drew me in, Hal Dawkins. I grew up with his son. And so when I figured out that that was him, I was like, okay, I got to watch it. Well, if you've not seen the, the movie, there is a scene uh, in the movie where the, the, the case is just long. And uh, Jamie Foxx is, is losing the jurors. Some are looking at their, their watches. Others are kind of going to sleep. Others are fighting sleep. Others are daydreaming. And he goes to his assistant counsel and he says, hey, we're losing them. We need to get a recess. And so he appeals to the judge for an early recess so that they can get up, stretch their legs and then come back after lunch. Now, why would he do that? Because he knows that that the length of the trial is taking its toll on the jurors. They can only remember so much. Hence, the closing arguments of any case. They're important because it's the last time that a lawyer gets to address the jury uninterrupted and and highlight the really important pieces of evidence, the things that I want you to remember. You've listened to a ton of things, but, 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 but this is what's important, and this is how we want you to rule based on what we think is absolutely important. You might make the case that Paul is doing the same thing here. That first Corinthians is long. And I'd imagine that if you sat there and read this letter, all 16 chapters, by the time you get to the end of it, you're just kind of forgetting stuff, right? Consider this, that this letter is almost 7,000 words. The average letter written in Paul's day was anywhere from 87 to 200 words. That's the average size of a letter. And so Paul comes to you with this opus, right? And it's, it's 34 letters long, right? And so you're, you're probably struggling. I, I, I don't remember what 1 Corinthians 3 was about. I don't remember what 1 Corinthians 2 was about. In fact, when we finish today, you will have listened to 29 sermons from 1 Corinthians by me. And we started this series back in August of 2022. Do you remember the third sermon? Right. You got notes, but I I don't. And I wrote it. Right. I got a full manuscript of every single sermon. And unless I go back, like I don't remember everything we talked about. And so Paul gives them a closing argument and he gives us a closing argument. It's important and it's impeccable. And what he's doing with rounding this letter out is saying, hey, here are the important things I want you to remember about the letter. And I want you to remember and respond accordingly. And we need to hear that. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning, that Paul's going to tell them, I want you to remember that the Christian life will entail spiritual warfare. You got to remember it. I want you to remember what spiritual warfare is after. What's its aim? And I want you to remember how you will overcome. How can you experience victory? And he's going to do that all in this conclusion. So let's look at it. The first thing he wants us to remember is that following Jesus means that we'll encounter spiritual warfare. And I'm going to put this passage in its context, then broader context, and then come back and, and, and look at verse 13. Now, think about what Paul wrote the last time we were in this letter. Look up with me in chapter 16, verses 6 or 7. Notice what Paul says. I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, verse 8, 
but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work is open to me, even though there are many adversaries. Did you catch that? So when Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, he's actually in Ephesus. He wants to get there to see them, but a door for ministry has opened in Ephesus, and so he stays. But the open door in Ephesus is not an easy door to walk through. He says there are many adversaries here who don't want that door open. If you go back up in chapter 15, when he was talking about the resurrection, he actually says, I fought with beasts in Ephesus. Who are these beasts and who are these adversaries? We don't know the name of them, but we do know that there are more than likely people under the sway of demonic forces that complicate and resist gospel ministry. So that's spiritual warfare, even in this chapter, in the chapter prior to it that he speaks of. But what about Ephesians 6? There are six chapters in Ephesians, and before Paul signs off in Ephesians, he says, finally, in conclusion, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and powers in, in heavenly places. So you hear that? Be strong and stand, right? So underline those two words. What about Peter? When Peter ends 1 Peter, it's five chapters. And guess how Peter ends 1 Peter? He says, finally, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so when Peter and Paul, when they sign off on some epistles, they always sign off by saying, hey, I've told you a lot of good stuff, but this good stuff that I've told you to do, you're going to struggle at doing it because it's hard, because you have the devil, right? Now, think about the words that Peter uses, be watchful. Think about the word that Paul uses in Ephesians 6, be strong and stand. Now look at 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be watchful. Peter just said that. Stand firm. Paul said that in Ephesians. Act like men. That's new. Be strong. Paul said that in Ephesians as well. What is this act like men? That's different. We've not seen that before. Is Paul saying, hey, you kids and women and men, you're acting weak, toughen up, right? Is that what he's saying? Is this toxic masculinity talk? The answer is no. One scholar who's a Thistleton, I've really enjoyed his commentary. He says the word that Paul uses here does not stand in contrast with feminine qualities or gender distinctions. Rather, it stands in contrast with their spiritual childishness. How do we know? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, but brothers, I cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. 1 Corinthians 14, brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And so Paul isn't just saying, hey, toughen up. You're acting weak. What he's actually saying is mature. You're acting like spiritual children. Now, think about that fourfold command then. Be watchful, be strong, stand, and mature. What is he saying behind that? He's saying that be watchful for the roaring lion who devours. Be watchful. Jesus is returning. Be strong in the faith, rooted in the word. 
mature, put off the deeds of the flesh and put on Christ and grow strong, be strengthened by the might of the Lord. That, that is language in all other passages in the Bible that have to do with spiritual warfare. And so Paul is reminding them as he signs off, it's going to be hard. Now, saints, following Jesus is joyous and joyful. You ever like hang out with like old friends who maybe don't know Jesus? And y'all used to do dirt together? And you see each other? And you're like, partner, you still ain't changed. And you praise God because you're different? You ever get those jitterbugs in your soul when you ponder the goodness of Jesus to you? When you realize the king of heaven knows your name and he sees you and he loves you and he will never leave you nor forsake you? Do you ever feel the joy when temptations that would have arrested your soul, they lose their luster? Because you have found the pearl of infinite worth. Like there is so much joy in the Christian life. You ever see news and tragedy on the news and you wonder like, what if I were to die in a car accident? What if someone were to invade my house and, and kill me and my family in the night in our sleep? What if I get that diagnosis that I don't want? And then Jesus whispers to you, but you're still mine. And fear not, he who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and cast thy soul into hell. And you need not fear him because he is your king and your brother and your friend now. There is so much joy in the Christian life. And yet there is also war. John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Rejoice, he says, the Christian life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. When Paul came to the end of his life, he said, I have fought the good fight. He tells Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. For Paul, all of life is war. Life is war because the maintenance of our faith and the laying hold of eternal life is a constant fight. And sadly, too few people think that we are in a greater war than any world war. Few people reckon that Satan is a much worse enemy than any nation or any bomb. Who considers that the casualties of this war do not merely lose an arm or a leg, but we lose everything, even our souls and bodies into hell forever. But most people do not believe this in their heart. Paul would have us to believe that life is war. And sometimes, saints, invasive thoughts that are alien to you, they're war. Sometimes temptation that comes looking for you, it's war. Sometimes when you're not looking to fall and you're tempted, it's war. Sometimes long bouts of depression and anxiety that overwhelms us and grief that pins us down. Doubts about the truthfulness and the goodness of God that come from nowhere. It's because we're in war. 
It's the first thing Paul wants him to remember. This is why you have to be watchful. This is why you have to stand firm. This is why maturity is important. This is why we need strength that is not ours. Because we're in a war that we can't win on our own. Which moves us to our second point. Let us remember the aim of spiritual warfare. Now, when we think about spiritual warfare, I don't know about you, but I always think about the agents of spiritual warfare. I think about my own flesh that resides in me that I have to destroy daily. And I'm, I'm sick and tired of, of toting around this body of death, right? Don't you feel that? That's an enemy. But another one is the world, the world system that we live in that is hostile to God and the things of God and our adversary, our great adversary. That is the devil, that 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 unholy trinity, the flesh, the world, the devil. Those are agents of war. And Paul doesn't really speak to that in our passage. But what he does speak to in this passage is the aim of spiritual spiritual warfare. Namely, what is it after? And here's what I'm going to tell you. It's after two things. Is to make you not love God, to not trust God, to not obey God. And spiritual warfare is also out to make you not love neighbor or we abuse neighbor and enslave neighbor and lie to neighbor and belittle neighbor and degradate neighbor and steal from neighbor and gossip about neighbor. That the aim of spiritual warfare, it's always to attack our love for the Lord and our love for neighbor. Now, this should make perfect sense, right? When Jesus, someone tried to trap Jesus, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, he is one. And you shall love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these, the entire Bible rests upon. And so that's where the simplicity of the gospel is brought to bear. Jesus is saying the essence of the Christian life is learning to love God and being rescued to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to be a lover of neighbor. Therefore, it makes perfect sense that if Satan is going to assault us, he's going after us in those two places. He's not trustworthy. You don't have to obey him. You get a pass. He's not worth worshiping and you can degradate and belittle and humiliate and isolate from and make fun of and not see and use people that you can bet your bottom dollar. That is what spiritual warfare is after. Those two things. Don't love God. Don't love people. And here's how I know you see it in the text. Did you notice right after Paul says in verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. What's the next thing he says? Let all that you do be done in love. Did you notice how this passage ends in verse 21, 22? If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. You see what Paul's doing? He's actually telling you what to be on watch for. Watch for your lovelessness. Watch for the way that you treat people. Watch for your affections towards God. And where you see affection for him waning. And where you see degradation of other image bearers. There, at that point, you're engaged in spiritual warfare. You get it? That's the aim. 
Don't love God. Don't love people. I think Paul puts this here because you can actually trace every single issue in this letter to a failure to love God and a failure to love neighbor. Okay, well, let me give you a few examples. Remember at the beginning, one thing that he addressed was their fracture in their community. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. I follow Apollos. Wait a minute. How is that unloving? Do you remember how Paul corrected them? He says, do you not know that he who plants is nothing? And he who waters is nothing? Only God who gives the increase. You hear what he's saying? You love in the messengers more than you love the master. And what about Apollos? Is it not unloving to him when you champion Peter in that corner and belittle Apollos in the gifts that he has? That's not loving to him. In fact, you'll notice in our passage that Paul actually writes in verse 12, now concerning Apollos, I urge him, I strongly urge him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not his will to come. He will come when he has the opportunity. Scholars, a lot of them say the reason Apollos ain't coming is because of the drama in the church. He's like, if, if my showing up is going to make y'all act like that, then guess what? I'm straight on y'all. I'm not even coming, Right. But then look at what Paul, who Paul actually commends to them. He says, I urge you in verse 15, the household of Stephanas. And so think about it. Dream with me. Could it be that they want to worship Apollos who isn't coming and Stephanas is actually in their midst and is faithful? And what he's saying is, look, you want this guy who's not coming and you got somebody faithful in your midst right now that you're overlooking. That's unloving. What about their sexual sin in Corinth? A man has his father's wife. Married men go indulge in temple prostitution. Married couples in healthy relationships, one spouse weaponizes sex and will not and denies. And Paul has to say, do not deny one another except for a limited amount of time and by agreement that you may not be tempted beyond your ability, right? And give Satan the foothold. If you choose to abstain, do it together, but then come back together quickly. Now, this assumes that, that there is no betrayal in marriage, that the marriage is healthy and intact, right? But guess what? At the core of all of those sexual sins, it's a failure to love God and a failure to love your spouse. You see, this man who has his father's wife, do you not love your father enough? This woman enough? Do you not love God enough to not indulge in the gratification of your lust with her? Can you not be like Joseph? When Potiphar's wife came at him, you remember what Joseph said? How can I sin against Potiphar, who's made me second in command? And how can I do this gross evil against God? It's God and man wrapped up together. What about the husbands going into prostitutes? Do you not love them well enough to free them from that bondage? To not indulge? Can you not be patient and wait? Can you not feast in the breast 
of the wife of your youth? Must you step outside? That's not love. And you're not loving God who says a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife alone. You're not loving him. And it works in marriage, in a healthy marriage, when one spouse will not initiate and, and, and will withhold. Do you not believe that, that this is a good commandment? That you leave and that you cleave and that you keep coming back together over and over and over again, that your marriage bed is pure and undefiled. And it's not loving your spouse by denying something that ought to be a treasure in your union. It all goes back to love. And what about money and how they were using money? Taking one another to court. Will you actually take your brother to court? Why not be defrauded? Why not trust that God will give you what you give up? And you who promised to make this offering and I come back a year later and you still have not given. Do you not hear the cries of those who are enduring a famine and persecution? When God has prospered your estate over and over and over again, do you not love neighbor enough to give them some? Do you not love his kingdom enough to give a portion back to the God who enables you to get wealth to begin with? You see, saints, at the core of every single issue in this letter, they're not loving God well. And they're not loving neighbor well. You might say that 1 Corinthians 16 is a recapitulation of 1 Corinthians 13. When Paul says, hey, there's a better way. There's a greater gift in tongues and in prophecy. There's a greater gift and, and it's the gift of love. Excel in learning to love. Excel in considering other people before you. Excel in being quick to listen and slow to speak. Excel at putting their needs above your own. Excel in the grace of speaking the truth in love. Excel in serving the saints. And y'all, this passage Got all over your boy this week. <laughs> when I was rude to my wife, it was unloving to her. And I had to text her and say, babe, will you forgive me? I didn't love you well. When somebody cut me off in traffic and I threw my hands up, right? It just wasn't loving. Why can't I say, hey, brother, you good? What is this coming out of me when I know full well that I've done the same? Here's, here's some homework for you. We tend to think of spiritual warfare being this big monstrosity of darkness, right? But I want to submit to you that Paul's giving us a different understanding. Watch yourself and your heart this week. When are you tempted to love God less and to love secondary gods more? When are you more in tune with the world and social media and what's happening in the lives of your friends more than you are with what's happening in the world of God and in the word of God? When are you tempted to shortcut, right? When are you tempted to be quick with people? and be impatient, and to be mean, and to avoid. You see, 
That's when you're in spiritual warfare. Right there. When you're tempted to not love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when you're tempted to not love neighbor as yourself. Which moves us to our final point. How do we overcome? How do we experience victory? Paul writes this conclusion and gives these exhortations because he actually believes that we can experience a measure of victory over the flesh, over the world, and over the devil. We can grow in our love for God and love for neighbor. Well, how? Ephesians 6 tells us to put on the full armor of God, the belt of truth, put on faith, put on the righteousness of Jesus, to go to him in prayer, to put on the helmet of salvation. Well, how then do we understand 1 Corinthians 16? Here's our temptation. We tend to think about spiritual warfare and we think Ephesians 6 is the end all be all. Warfare, oh, that's the Ephesians 6. Put on the full armor of God. But what I want to submit to you today is that 1 Corinthians 16 needs to be in that toolkit. It's not an either or. It's a both and. In addition to putting on the full armor of God, Paul gives us four things in this passage that help us overcome. And I'm going to give them to you quickly. To experience victory over the demonic we must rest in the love and grace of Christ. Beloved, the Bible tells us to love the Lord. But the same Bible also tells us we who love him have been first loved by him. And so before there's a call for us to love him, it is a call to rest in his love. That love that would not count equality with God as something to be held on to. That love that would move Jesus to leave the riches of heavens and come to the ghetto of earth. That love that would compel him to bear the sins of all of his people for all time on the tree of Golgotha. Because we in Adam reached out in unbelief for the tree that we were told not to reach out for. It's that love that will move him to lay down his life, not when we were his friends, but while we were his enemies, hurling threats at him, wanting nothing to do with him. It's that love that, 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 that sees that and hears that and still says, I love you too much to leave you there. It's that love and grace that flows from what he's done for us on the cross in which we stand and move. It's the love that tells us, though you fall a million times, where your sin abounds, my grace will abound more every single time. So the women in our church are reading Daniel. And the good thing about having a wife in the study is that we talk about, what are you reading this week, babe? And the ladies in the church, you read Daniel 10 this week. And you know that that's in the context of spiritual warfare. In Daniel 10, Daniel was mourning for three weeks. He was praying and had no answer. And finally, an angel of the Lord came to Daniel and he touched him and he, he set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he says, Daniel, oh man, greatly loved. Understand these words. And then Jesus shows up and one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he says, oh, man, greatly loved. 
fear not, peace be with you, be strong and be of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. Did y'all catch that? That Daniel is not told, be strong. He's told, I love you. And when I hear, when Daniel hear, heard, I love you, you're greatly loved. In those words, he was strengthened. Beloved, if we're going to have victory over the powers of darkness, it's going to start with hearing Jesus tell you over and over and over again, I love you. You're known. No matter what happens right here, you're still mine. Do you understand where, where, how that strengthens our souls? To rest in the love of Christ, which moves us to our second point. If we're going to experience victory in warfare, we must learn to love God from others who've been doing this longer than us. You're right. It is an accepted truth in all spheres of life that if we're going to grow and get good at anything, we need people who are far better at that thing than us. It's the reason why when you have a teenage driver, they don't just get to go past a written exam and get keys. Amen. There's a reason the law says, no, partner, you got to go spend some hours with somebody who got a driver's license. It's a reason when you go to college, your professor has doctor in front of their names. They have forgotten more organic chemistry than you're going to learn in a semester. You need people farther along if you're going to grow. And did you notice how Paul talks about Stephanus? Look at what he says. He says, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in all of Achaia. And they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, right? And then he mentions Aquila and Priscilla in verse 19. The churches there send you their greetings. Who are Aquila and Priscilla? That's the husband and wife team in 1 Corinthians 18. When Paul got there from leaving Athens, he had nowhere to stay. That couple were kicked out of Rome because Claudius made all the Christians leave. So they were already Christians when they showed up in Corinth. And when Paul didn't have a job, didn't have anywhere to stay, he found them. They found him. Paul lived with them. And now they're in Ephesus. And when you read the book of Romans, he's going to send greetings to them in Rome. And so we think they went to Rome as well. And then they end up back in Ephesus. This is a power couple. They go where the gospel calls. Paul, you need a house? We got a house. Paul, you need a job? We got a job. You're going to go to Rome. We're going to go back there, right? And here's what he says. Notice what he says in the passage. Verse 16, be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. Do you hear what he's saying? Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, they've left you to come to Corinth. I mean, to come to Ephesus and they've refreshed my soul and yours. He says, be subject to them and people like them. You hear what he's saying? You grow to the degree that you allow those who've been walking with Jesus longer than you to speak into your life. We live in an individualistic, 
world that prizes youth and we dismiss authority and older people. Paul says, if you embrace that, you can best be assured you won't grow. If you're going to grow, you got to have this posture. One hand forward. I'm a new wife and I don't know how to do this wife thing. I'm single and I've been single for a long time and I don't know how to do this single thing. I've just laid my husband to rest and I don't know how to go on without him, right? Like we have people right there in these situations and we have people in front of them in the faith who have endured, who are weathered and we have people behind us. Well, I ain't married yet. I'm in high school. What would it look like to have this posture? One hand is forward. Older woman, will you disciple me? Older man, I just want to sit on your porch and have a cigar and talk about Jesus. And I got my hand back here saying, you under me? I'm availing myself to you. What I know you have. And guess what? This works from the top all the way down. What would it look like if our high schoolers could come alongside of our middle schoolers? So many of you are in college and you serve with our youth. You're doing it. Paul is saying if we're going to grow, it's going to have to be around others who are more mature. Third, to experience victory in spiritual warfare, we must have regular physical expressions of our togetherness. Regular physical expressions of our togetherness. Did you notice how often Paul says, greet one another? The church in Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla and their church, they greet you. I send you greetings. We send you greetings. All of you greet one another with a holy kiss. When they came to me, they refreshed my spirit and yours. What's all of that about? To greet someone. To kiss someone. That's like Intimacy. It communicates, I see you, I recognize you, I'm in life with you. And see, spiritual warfare aims to siphon you away from the body and to make you do life alone. Well, Paul is saying one way we overcome is through good and healthy and regular physical embodiment of our union. So there's a talk done by a TED talk done by Helen Wassling, and she begins by talking about this woman who is in labor. And this woman is in labor and she reaches over to her midwife and she says, please give me the epidural. And the midwife says, well, might I offer you something different for your pain? I don't want anything but an epidural. What, what different thing are you offering me? Might I offer you some physical touch? And the lady's like, what? Give me epidural. What is this physical touch you're talking about? And so the midwife gets behind the woman who is in labor and they have flesh to flesh contact. And she begins to envelop her in her arms and they begin to rock side to side, body to body. And then the midwife puts her hand over the woman's stomach and begins to gently apply pressure. 
and rubbing pressure in unison with the woman's breathing. And all of this is happening. And the woman actually makes it through birth with relieved pain through physical touch. And the woman giving birth is the woman giving the TED talk. And so this sensor on this study, like what is it about physical touch? And she goes on to say, can you imagine a world where you and your best friend have not seen each other for two years and you pick her up at the airport and you run to each other, but you stop right there. There is no touching, right? What kind of world is that? Can you imagine a world where your son or daughter trips and falls or on their bike and their knees are skinned up and they run back, mommy or daddy, can you help me? And here's what you do. You give them the ointment and you give them the band-aids. Do we not stroke their legs and draw them near? Can you imagine a world where a newborn is born and they're kept isolated from their parents, right? No, we know right now that the most important thing you do for a newborn is flesh flesh to flesh contact with mother and father seconds after birth now why it's because we have these nerve endings they're called ct nerve endings and they're everywhere in our bodies except the palm of our hands and the sole of our feet feet but they're everywhere and guess where these nerve endings go back to they go back to the parts of your brain that is about emotional and social well-being. And so when you're greeted with a kiss and when you're held bodily by another, it's doing more than you know. It's letting you know that I'm with you. I see you. You are valuable. You are not alone. And we are safe together. Imagine what this would do if you buried a spouse, you lost a child, you failed this week in sin, that you're angry at election outcomes, that you're angry, I mean angry when you watch images of children who have been slaughtered and massacred, right? In war. Imagine how that traumatizes us. And then imagine coming into a place where people say, I see you. And it's hard. And come on in here. Let me hold you. Saints, during one of the darkest moments in our ministry, we had had maybe the third or fourth miscarriage and there was nothing I could do to console my wife and one of you came over and brought her flowers and you just held her and on the heels of that we had a student commit suicide and I walked into this body and someone knew it and he just said, hey, come, I know what you're going through. And he held me. One of my best friends, later that week, my wife called him. She said, he's not doing well. I, I've never seen him like this. 
and he drove four hours. And he was in my living room when I pulled up. And I got home and I saw him and he just grabbed me and he put his hand on the back of my head and he held me. So Paul is saying, like we were made to do life with people. We were made to have regular reminders through physical touch that I'm not alone. And so Paul says, they refreshed my soul when they showed up. What would it look like for us to be a group of men in pursuit of Jesus? Who used physical touch as a reminder that we're not alone. What would it look like for women to use appropriate physical touch and our children? And, and, and I know like we have to guard against predators, but, but our children need to know that physical touch and holding hands and, and hugging appropriately is it, it does a war against hell. We need regular reminders of bodily union. The single person who does not have a spouse, they need to be embraced. They need to be hugged. They need to know that they matter. Which moves us to our last thing. To experience victory in spiritual warfare, we, we must remember that Jesus is returning. I love how Paul ends the letter. He says, our Lord come. The, the word is Maranatha there. And Paul is saying, Jesus come. Now, how does that help us overcome spiritual warfare now? You ever watch boxing? I grew up as a Mike Tyson fan. Like I, I'm all things Mike Tyson, right? And I can just remember certain, certain, certain fights, right? Where boxers get tired it's it's 20 seconds left uh in a round and and they're just slugging each other out and and then somebody's injured and, and what they'll do when they're injured is they'll start getting on the ropes and they'll start grabbing each other and holding each other but what they're what they're doing is trying to stand until the bell rings because when i go to my corner my cut man is gonna make me stop bleeding my cut man is gonna give me some ammonia to wake me back up my my, my, my boxing coach is gonna tell me hey man he's running this combo on you he's gonna give me words so that i can get back in there and fight again that's what paul is doing he's actually saying look you got a cut man who's coming Somebody's coming and, and this fight's going to end. And so I want you to hold on, hold on, hold on, because a day is coming where you won't have to fight anymore. When Jesus returns, he's giving you a new body. When Jesus returns, he's making a new world. When Jesus returns, he's sending Satan and his demons to the lake of fire forever. And guess what? You will wake up and never, ever have to fight again. And when you know that, we can hang on a little longer. We can hang on a little longer because he's coming. This is how we overcome saints. By resting in the love of Jesus. By availing ourselves to those more mature and being willing to submit and learn from. By regularly giving and receiving bodily reminders that we're not alone. 
and by remembering that he's coming back. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for your word and how it ministers to our souls. Father, I pray that uh, you give us victory this week. Father, acts of love are no small thing. Loving you with heart, soul, mind, and strength and neighbor as ourselves. It's not only for our good, but as our reflection quote reminds us, it is offensive warfare against a demon who moves us to hate. And so make us a people, Lord, this week who want to do good works, who want to love you and love neighbor, even as we have been loved. So help us, Jesus, we pray. Amen.